Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 30th, The Shape of Things, Part 1, Retrospective on Halloween. So what better way to close up the close up the year, month of October and to commemorate the objectively best holiday in the world with one of the best horror franchises there is. So a few little things about housekeeping here. I'm going to be breaking this up into a two-parter because I, I fucking love the Halloween franchise. It's one of my favorites. The original Halloween is one of the best horror movies of all time, in my opinion. And I kind of wanted to go a little more in-depth as much as I could with these. Because, um, yeah, some of the sequels are not great. <laughs> But the way I'm doing this is this is going to be what I guess you could call the classic era for Halloween uh, or the Strode-Lloyd timeline, if if you prefer. So we're talking about everything from 1978 to 2002. So everything between the original Halloween up to Halloween Resurrection. And the reason I called it that is the Strode-Lloyd is because we've got two different timelines here. You've got the one where it's the first one, Halloween 2, and then Halloween's 4, 5, and 6, where uh, Lori dies off-screen after the events of 2, and we have her niece, Jamie Lloyd, as our new final girl. Um, Well, sort of. Or the other one where it's 1, 2, and then we skip all the way to H2O, and then Resurrection, where Lori gets away after Halloween 2, survives for 20 years out in California. And then uh, up until the like end of the first five minutes of Resurrection, it's, um, it's still her. We're going to be talking about the Rob Zombie remakes, and we're going to be talking about the David Gordon Green trilogy tomorrow. Uh, you know, if this is the classic, those are the modern era. Uh, yeah, so... Honestly, I mean, what else can I say about the original Halloween that hasn't been said a million times? It was one of the first first movies to... Actually, I think up to this point, like, Jamie Lee Curtis had only been, like, on television for a few episodes on Columbo, for example. Um, And, yeah, this pretty much opened like, paved her way to becoming one of the iconic scream queens of of 80s horror. Um, There was, obviously, you've got Donald Pleasance playing Dr. Sam Loomis, who, oh, good lord. (laughs) It's like, is there any, like, non-slasher who's been, like, as iconic for slasher horror as Dr. Loomis has? The funniest thing to me is that, like, he was is that he was not even the first person asked. Two of the people that Carpenter asked beforehand were uh, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Um, the latter had just been in Star Wars, and the former would later be in Star Wars, way down the line. Uh, and I think Christopher Lee said it was one of his biggest regrets in life turning the role down. But, you know, as I said way back in the uh, spotlight on Donald Pleasance. The man was an amazing actor, God rest his soul. And 
he had such an iconic voice. He had such a... I don't know. There was just something about Donald Pleasance that just made... It just gave you a strong impression regardless of the role he was playing. And it's especially funny in some of the more villainous roles I've seen him do where he's just acting like a complete lunatic, which is completely opposite to everything else I'd seen of him. Like, even when he was playing a villainous role, like, I think the, you know, I think one of the ones that people most recognize him from other than this is as Blofeld from, I forget which one of the James Bond movies, but, you know, that's obviously survived on in, like, you know, Dr. Evil. (laughs) But, I don't know, it's just, it's such a... I mean, I know the first Halloween is, like, dated by modern standards because it was, what I say, it was the transition from, like, proto-slasher into just regular slasher. Every, like, big slasher movie copied off of it to some degree. It was the Lord of the Rings of slasher movies, if you want to put it that way. Uh, But, honestly... The way I know this works is my friend... Uh, I'm not, I don't want to, I respect her privacy, so I'm just going to call her Kate on this. I showed Kate her, this movie, and as tame as it is by modern standards, it still freaked her the fuck out. I mean, admittedly, she's got, like, no stomach for horror movies, but even with how, like, relatively bloodless it is, relatively, um, restrained the violence is, and how... I mean, you know, you do see uh, Judith and Linda both topless in the movie, but how restrained with the sexuality it is, even by how tame it is to us now. Because, I mean, this thing came out before my parents were even in high school. It's, it still freaked her the fuck out. Like, she, we were sitting next to each other on the couch, she grabbed my arm so hard that it nearly bruised. And... Like, that's the reason it lived on, I think. it Because it combined that... Okay, I this is a long... This is a long kind of ambling rant. I think it's because when you look at horror movies, like, up to this point, a lot of them, like, took place in rural settings, for the U.S. at least. Or if they took place in a more settled environment, they either took place at, like, some isolated big home, like a vacation house... Or they occurred in, like, the seedier parts of a city. Like, especially if it was just, like, a murderer involved. I think this kind of freaked out because this was the time period when a lot of the people who, you know, moved... Whose families moved out to the suburbs as kids in the U.S., like, they were grown up. And to have this killer walking around Haddonfield, which was just supposed to be this little town in the middle of Illinois somewhere... It's like, uh uh-uh, you suburbanites aren't safe either. Like, that worked, and the way it slowly, like, builds up the tension. And, I mean, obviously, you've got that iconic... You've got that wonderful score. Like, one of my biggest complaints about Halloween 2, actually, was them, like, remixing that a little bit. And, like, you didn't need to do that. But, uh... Yeah, I mean, the music is... As far as I know, it's mostly by John Carpenter. I probably should have checked this beforehand. Oops. But uh, 
you know, that iconic opening theme, the da, 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 that's just that 5-4, just that 5-4 time on the piano. Like, okay, music music theory nerd hat here. There's just something about 5-4 that just makes it, about a 5-4 time signature that makes it really good at conveying, like, dread or unease. Like, one of the other big, one of the other big places you'll hear it is if you listen to one of my favorite classical pieces actually is Gustav Holst, the uh, planet suite. When you get to Mars, the bringer of war, a fair amount of that's in five, four, as far as I remember, but it has that sort of like sense of something bad is coming basically. But just the way the movie builds up the tension, the restraint that Carpenter shows with the music, the quality of the music and the fact that we get like actual characters to identify with, you know, you've got Lori, who's kind of the, you know, she's kind of become the archetypical final girl, but she really isn't to some degree. Like she's still, you know, she's still very much like the, she's got like one foot in each camp when it comes to like the old fashioned versus, you know, new type of teenager, at least for the seventies. And, you know, part of that is she's like very restrained. She's very responsible. She's very studious aside from like one scene where she like smokes weed with Annie. You've got her friend, Annie, who's obviously a little more rebellious, even though she's like the, you know, (laughs) she's the daughter of the sheriff. Uh, she kind of has that sort of bored in a small town rebellion. You've got Linda who's like, in a lot of ways, is like stereotypical teenage girl. It's kind of the same no matter what era that movie, the movie gets made in. And on top of that, you've got Sheriff. You got Sheriff Lee Brackett, who's honestly kind of thinks Doctor Loomis is a bit of a nutcase himself. And you've got Loomis, obviously, who is the psychiatrist for. Michael after he stabbed his sister when he was six years old. Now, I know a lot of people attack this for... I know a lot of people attack the old 70s, the 78 Halloween for a lack of realism, and they try to um, hold up the zombie movie, the Rob Zombie ones, as a more realistic version of Michael, which, first off, no. Okay. (laughs) Rob Zombie Halloween gets a little more hate it's a lot more hate than it deserves, in my opinion, but that's still not a realistic Michael. And secondly, the idea of Michael stabbing someone to death when he was six years old is not entirely unrealistic. The serial killer Peter Curtin committed his first murder when he was nine years old. Obviously, people didn't find out about it back then. That was a double. But getting off of that, you know, we have all of our great, we have all the characters, and they're not terribly deep, most of them. But they're enough that you can get invested with them. But then there's Michael. And this is the thing that I think is why I didn't enjoy the Rob Zombie movies, even though I don't think they're that bad. But the thing that made Michael creepy is, well, obviously that mask first. (laughs) They took, like, I'm pretty sure it was a Captain Kirk mask is the old story they like painted it white they pulled the hair back a little bit 
there's just something about it, how it looks like a human face, but it's expressionless. It's so pale and featureless. And then the fact that the way the movie is shot, you like hardly ever see Michael's eyes because they because the shadow is just hanging over them and you can't actually see even a little bit of his face through the, you know, holes for the eyes. The fact that he shows, like, no motivation for anything. He just kills. The fact that he seems to be able to do stuff that normal humans can't. I mean, one of the hints that we get back in his town is that Judith Myers, his older sister that he stabbed, like, her tombstone's gone missing. Okay, tombstones can weigh, like, half a ton. (laughs) So, I don't know how Michael lifted that at all. The fact that, you know, spoilers if you haven't seen it, but, you know, like I said, the movie's over 40 years old at this point. At the end, it concludes with, you know, Loomis rescuing Laurie. He just unloads his revolver, just, just pumps six rounds into him, and Michael falls off the balcony. When Loomis turns back to talk to Laurie, you know, they exchange a couple words, Loomis looks back, and Michael's gone. So the fact that there was nothing explicitly supernatural about Michael, even though he was so clearly, you know, different from a normal human. That, to me, is what makes Michael freaky. Like, if... Like, Halloween 1978 would be, like, a perfect perfect slasher movie to me if they didn't ever take off Michael's mask because I don't know why they did that but it's the one thing that kind of just takes me out of it and then there's the whole fact that you know you can see Michael just sort of lurking around in the background and that's the thing he's not even doing anything but you just the screen composition you know that there's something going on with there and I think well we'll get into this later with David Gordon Green but Michael if Michael enjoyed anything it seemed to just be fucking with people the fact that he would just stand there ominously when they'd look away he'd just be gone and you know Loomis himself we I mean, Loomis himself, he's a psychiatrist. He's assigned to look after Michael, see if he could be rehabilitated, because that's what you do when a six-year-old, for no particular reason, stabs someone to death. You try and see what the hell is going on in their head. And he's, he's, I I forget the exact number here, so when he's given his old, the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes speech, he said something to the effect of, I spent... I think it was seven years trying to reach him and then another eight trying to keep him locked up. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, a professional psychiatrist, a practicing psychiatrist could not get through to this kid. The kid apparently did not say a word for 15 years, showed no real response to anything. Uh, Yeah, I, I like a lot of people complained about the like supernatural elements in this series, but, I mean, it's not hard to see why 
people would have the idea to post those into these. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on because I don't want this whole thing to just be about the first one. Uh, Halloween Two was the debut film directed by Rick Rosenthal, who would later direct Halloween Resurrection. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, this was made a couple years afterwards to help cash in on the slasher craze, I should mention. John Carpenter, as far as I can tell, didn't really care for any of the sequels. <laughs> or at the very least, he wasn't interested in helping make them, although I think he was a producer on this one. And it picks up immediately where the original left off. Uh, Lori's taken to the hospital because Michael... Um, the thing that people don't seem to get is that Laurie is not the, is different from the archetypical final girl in a way, is that, and she's not like a damsel in distress or anything like that. Had she been able to, had this not been Michael, basically, she wouldn't have needed Loomis's help. She, like, stabbed him repeatedly, one, or at least, or at least twice. He got, she got him, like, in the neck with a, with a knitting needle. The fact that Michael got up after that is one of the freakiest parts. Had it not been him, she wouldn't have needed any help. But she got wounded. Um, she got stabbed, and she got thrown downstairs, so one of her legs is kind of, like, uh, tweaked a little bit, if you want to put it that way. Um, there's something in here that comes up again in both... Halloween 4 and Halloween Kills, where an innocent person gets killed in a case of mistaken identity. There's this guy who's walking around, and he's got, like, the same type of mask that Michael does. I don't... I don't know why he wasn't saying anything in this case when Loomis and the sheriff were, like, trying to flag him down. But he just kind of wanders into the road, and he gets hit by an incoming cop car who doesn't see him. And... And like any, and like any cars that hit each other in the in an eighties movie, they just immediately burn and burst into flames. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Halloween two, the original Halloween two was a fairly good sequel. My one complaint is that this feels a lot more like a conventional slasher movie. I mean, granted, everyone kind of knows that Michael is out now. Everyone knows that he's responsible for these killings. So there isn't much of an opportunity for suspense. In the beginning, there was, because it took a while for people to be informed that he was that he had escaped from Smith's Grove, from the psychiatric institute. Um, I mean, this was the 70s. We d they didn't have, like, smartphones. People couldn't just... I mean, they had, like, landlines, but, you know... Uh, there would still be a bit of a delay in communication. And the fact that that whole movie takes place over, like, a day and some change. Um, but yeah, the issue with Halloween 2 is that when you do that, there isn't as much of an opportunity for tension building up, so you have to go with a higher body count. The... And most of the sequences... Uh, Michael honestly just kills a couple of, like, nobodies before moving on to the hospital, where 
uh, where he tries to track down Lori. And, well, I'm going to be completely honest. If I had, the, the biggest complaint with this is you have a slasher movie. You want, obviously you want the same stuff you want from uh, basically any kind of movie. You want, you want to have characters you can relate to. You want to have a plot that is both engaging and makes sense. And you still get that with Laurie and Loomis. It's just not as much anymore. But watching it now is like the kills are kind of underwhelming. I mean, there's that great scene where uh, one of the EMTs is like, you know, fooling around with one of the nurses at the hospital because it's the night shift. No one's paying attention. So they go in and basically use one of the hydrotherapy tubs as like a hot tub to relax in. Michael turns up the heat. When the guy gets out, he to um, turn it down because it's too hot for him and his girlfriend. You get this great scene where it's like they're silhouetted against like frosted glass and he's just like, I think, strangling him. And then Michael comes in, uh, puts his hand on the nurse's shoulder. When she realizes that it's not Bud, she screams, but he just like shoves her head in it and just like keeps dunking her until she, I guess, dies from heat stroke. (laughs) There's like great effects where it's like the flesh... Flesh is just kind of peeling off. But overall, um, it's still a fairly solid sequel. They did a great job of marrying it into the original um, without making the original feel pointless. Uh, They did up the stakes. um, Because, you know, Michael's killing more people. And spoilers for those that haven't seen it, but it has one of the coolest endings even if the sequence goes on a little too long um and this is the one where you know the whole plot about Lori being michael's younger sister that he didn't kill that's where this one that comes from this one along with the and i'm gonna say that i'm gonna just say this up front it's not pronounced sam hain it's sawain it, they spelled it right but because it's originally a Celtic or Irish word, if you prefer, it doesn't really read how it's, it doesn't really, it's not really pronounced how it's read. So it's Samhain instead of Samhain. So that's where the whole, like, thorn thing came in in the later movies. Uh, but the ending for this, Michael is basically blinded, and... He's in this little room with Laurie and Loomis, and the two of them uh, let out these pressurized tanks of both fuel and oxygen. And after Laurie flees the room, Loomis just flicks on a lighter, and the whole like wing just bursts into flame. Michael still managed to walk for a little bit out of that fire and then collapsed. And then, you know the movie ends with the same music that it started with, which is Mr. Sandman. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, that one was not as well-received as the original, obviously. Uh, I think it's got like a 30% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's a little harsh, but it's easier to see why. The 
it's focusing more on the kills and the kill count here, and some of the kills are kind of underwhelming, although creative. But they're just shot in such a way where it's like there's no gravity to like Michael's strikes here. There's there's not like I mean there's blood, but it's not really a lot. I mean I don't want to sound I know I sound like a psychopath saying that, <laughs> but the gore is a little underwhelming in this one, even though it's supposed to be a little bloodier. Uh, other than that one in the hydrotherapy room, that was that was cool. Um, so moving on. Yeah, I did. Uh, I'm gonna be skipping Halloween season of the witch because I like it, but it's so different from the others that I don't feel. Um, it kind of feels unfair to include it and then compare it to all the others. So. I'm going to be skipping that one for now. Uh, maybe at a certain point in the future, I will come back and talk about that one. But for now, uh, that's not on the. For now, that's not on the agenda today. So we are actually going to skip all the way to Halloween Four. Now. Uh, all I will say about Halloween 3 here is that if you've heard of it, you know that it probably... <sighs> it had kind of a bad... It was very poorly received, actually, when it came out, although it's become a cult hit in its own right. Um, it's definitely worth a watch. If you have Peacock, it's, you should be able to watch it if you're subscribed to that. But... Well, Halloween 4. So yeah, after the reception to Halloween 3, there were ideas for further installments. And they went through a few rounds of rewrites. The original script was uh, Daniel Etchison, who did novelizations for both 2 and 3, as well as for uh, the other, uh, the John Carpenter movie, The Fog. The producer, Mustafa Akkad, rejected the script, called it too cerebral, uh, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I don't know what he meant by that. And he wanted any further sequels to have Michael back as a flesh and blood killer. I. It's weird hearing that because it kind of feels, you know, uh, we'll get to that when we get to it, but it kind of feels almost like a more metaphorical approach to what they ended up doing in Halloween Ends this year. But, so, that one got thrown out. Uh, Dwight Little was brought in to direct. He's mostly known today for directing action films like Murder at 1600, Marked for Death, some episodes of 24, Dollhouse, Prison Break, and Nikita, and some episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. The news script was written by Alan B. McElroy, who did the script for uh, Wrong Turn, uh, that John Cena movie, The Marine, Spawn, it added in the uh, love triangle that we had, that we ended up having in the movie. Uh, and it kind of scrapped the ending where the house that they're in kind of burns down because it wasn't possible for them to do it with the budget they had. 
So they ended up going with the sort of convoluted one where it was like, escape the house, go to the school, escape the school, and throw Michael down a mine shaft. Um, filming along the same line with budget, filming in California was getting to be a little too expensive for them, so they went uh, and filmed it in Salt Lake City and just dressed the area to look like fall. It was the start of what some people have called the Thorn Trilogy. So, like I said, um, we have Jamie Lloyd, played by Danielle Harris. Canonically, she is Lori's daughter, uh, staying with the Carruther fa- Carruthers family after Lori died off-screen. Uh, Michael, at the after the end of Halloween 2, has been in a sort of coma for 10 years, uh, you know, recovering from the burn injuries as well. And... She and he awake and he wakes up and escapes to track down Jamie. He's being transferred from one institute to another because uh, Loomis is retired apparently. But after hearing that he escaped, Loomis, who is still alive at this point as well, is just kind of burned and is walking with a limp and a cane now. He takes it upon himself to hunt Michael again. I. You know, if you've seen the ending, I know a lot of people were kind of disappointed that nothing really came of that. But, again, with the whole... But at the same time, I gotta imagine... Imagine if the Halloween franchise had just ended after 4. <laughs> spoilers, but like, you know, they've gone through the whole thing. Michael's been thrown down a mine shaft. He's been blown up with dynamite. We don't see the body break apart, obviously, but still nothing could survive that. And we go home, everything seems fine, and then we get the POV shot mirrored from the start of the first movie. <laughs> and then Loomis looks. Loomis hears a scream, looks up the stairs, and then just sees Jamie standing up there in kind of a similar clown costume to what Michael was wearing which she was wearing earlier in the evening, too, with a pair of, like, bloody scissors in her hand after having just attacked her stepmother. Non-fatally this time. I know a lot of people were apparently kind of disappointed that nothing really went came from that, but, I mean, you know, she was like a 10-year-old girl. What are you supposed to do with a 10 or 11-year-old girl? She's not... That physically intimidating. <laughs> but, you know, Halloween 4 still managed to enjoy a mild success at the box office, especially given the fact that, you know, no one liked Halloween 3, so they had to call it the return of Michael Myers to, you know, say promise we're bringing Michael back. It's kind of like what, uh, you know, Friday the 13th did with uh, Part 6, because no one liked Part 5. <laughs> but... You know, Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. So, uh, so the sequel was planned for the following year because they got good enough returns at the box office. It was directed by, and I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, I'm, and I'm sorry, Dominique Othenin-Gerard, who is a Swiss-French director who also aided in writing the final draft for the screenplay. And here's where the series started to explicitly 
have supernatural horror in it. Michael is under the influence of some kind of mysterious cult, although uh, this like plot line ended up getting minimized. Um, the problem is the cuts to the beginning and the end of the movie kind of took out a lot of the explanation. So it kind of just ended up making the movie a lot less coherent with... So, yeah, so basically the there were supposed to be um, scenes of the beginning and end. I, I've, been, I've read that kind of explain the whole Cult of Thorn thing because you see the little, like, runic symbol on Michael's hand at different points. Uh, at points in this movie, in 5, there's just the man in black who's walking around. He's not really doing anything. He's just got, like, these black cowboy boots on. And Michael is under the influence of this cult, and he's driven to kill off any of his blood relatives for some reason. So follow the ending of 4, where Jamie, for no apparent reason, attacks her stepmother. Uh, as I said, similar to how Michael stabbed his sister at the beginning of the original. Michael and Jamie apparently have some kind of psychic link, and Jamie is now partially mute due to the trauma. And she has these seizure-like episodes whenever Michael is about to kill someone. Uh, there's a point where they actually save the life of Rachel's friend Tina. Because, uh, <laughs> kind of funnily enough, Michael kills her boyfriend, who's also named Michael. T- puts his mask on and just drives the car. Um, when Tina just thinks it's Michael being an asshole... Um, which she's partially right about, just not the right Michael. And when they stop at this like convenience store, Jamie manages to speak just enough to give the cops the location so they get to her before Michael can kill her. And after this long sequence where... Um, where Loomis basically uses... Jamie is bait with her full knowledge and permission, I should mention. Um, They manage to trap Michael and confine him to the police station. Uh, Loomis leaves. And Jamie, who's still sitting out in the car, hears gunfire and a bomb go off, and she goes into the station and realizes all the cops are dead. The place is partially burned. And Michael's just gone. So. And she just kind of starts like freaking out and crying right as the screen cuts to black and the credits roll. Yeah, overall five is kind of. I mean, I definitely think it gets a lot more hate than it deserves, but I kind of say that about pretty much the entire franchise, honestly. It's just. It's just, this is where you can definitely tell there was, like, they were kind of making this up as they went along, and maybe if there had been a bit less of interference, uh, either from the studio or from, like, editing, maybe the movie would have been a little coherent, made a little more sense, but... I don't know. (laughs) I think the, I think the whole cult thing could have been, like, a weird sort of kitschy, um aspect to the movie that could have been fun but 
it just kind of ended up being a whole lot of nothing, honestly. Uh, and unfortunately, this was also Danielle Harris's last entry into at least this timeline. She would um, re-enter in the Rob Zombie movies uh, playing Annie, Annie Brackett, uh, this time all grown up. Oh, good Lord, Halloween 6. <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the typical candidates for the Black Sheep title of the... For the black sheep of the family, Curse of Michael Myers was put on hold after the chilly reaction to revenge. Mustafa Kad wanted to reevaluate where the series was going. Uh, Daniel Ferrans was a lifelong Halloween superfan, as he described himself, and he was allowed to pitch his script to a Cod. Uh, Phil Rosenberg and actually Quentin Tarantino, of all people, both submitted ideas, and they were both rejected. Rans basically drew on as much of the lore as he could from both movies and novelizations to try and make some form of coherent explanation for this Cult of Thorn storyline. And, you know, it's impressive because this was mostly based off of, like, one throwaway, throwaway line from Halloween 2. Because uh, someone broke in, someone, possibly Michael, broke into the school and just, yeah, it, it was definitely Michael, now I think about it, sorry and wrote in blood Sawain on the blackboard. And Loomis kind of goes on this uh, sort of, not necessarily lore dump because it's not that much, but he talks about, calls it Lord of the Dead, which it's not actually, but it's close enough. Uh, Sawain is a Celtic festival that's fairly close uh, to Halloween calendar-wise. And then he talks about how the druid priests would make sacrifices. Uh, this was Donald Pleasance's final film, sadly. Uh, Danielle Harris had to be replaced because she refused the low salary of $1,000, which was actually less than what she had to pay up to that point because her parents didn't want her coming back, I think, and she had to become legally emancipated minor to be in the movie. And that $1,000 was actually less than what she had to pay to get that paperwork filed. Now, according to Daniel Ferrans, a lot of the on-the-ground conditions led to him and the director, Joe Chappelle, having to do scene-to-scene rewrites. Poor test screenings led to post-production reshoots. And as he put it, it led to a flashier but far more confusing movie. And... Here's here's the big thing. There's two main cuts of this movie. Theatrical versus producer's cut. Uh, producer's is a little more grounded, uh, and it has a different ending. Um, the way I would say, I'm not going to get too much into the differences, but the producer's cut, I think, is better for the most part, but I like the ending in the theatrical better personally um although the producer's cut ending is kind of interesting too as well but you know the producer's version has i guess you could say it's a much more coherent storyline uh, there's a bit more characterization one of the big things i just hated was that it's like the now living Strode family 
and like the dad's just a miserable asshole. <laughs> to everyone. I think there's supposed to be like I probably I forgot to take this down in my notes, but I think they're meant to be like the cousins of uh Lori's adoptive family. So that one didn't really go anywhere. It had an abysmal reception. I think it's got like a 3% on Rotten Tomatoes. Might even be a zero, which would be impressive because those are actually hard to get. So a few years later, three actually, uh, two or three, but we got H2O, Halloween 20 years later. It's a reboot, as a, another podcaster, Phil at the Movies, said. It might be the first of the requel, which was a term, hilariously enough, coined because of you know the 2018 version. But this was basically retconning 4 through 6. So none of that's canon anymore. Uh, Lori's now the headmistress of a private school out in California. She's under the name of Mrs. Tate. Uh, much like the 2018 reboot line, there's a focus on her dealing with her trauma on being a survivor of a serial killer attack. And it's the only film where the majority of it is actually outside Haddonfield. She's now divorced. She has a 17-year-old rebellious son played by Josh Hartnett. Uh, the opening scene is still in Haddonfield where a house is broken into by Michael. The house had files that detailed where Lori is now. Uh, I also want to mention that just because apparently it's also got Joseph Gordon-Levitt from before he was like, you know, famous, famous. But got some really good set pieces, really good kills. Uh, we get some comic relief in the form of the security guard for the grounds uh, played by LL Cool J. And... It takes place where it's in it where it's isolated. It's actually relatively restrained with the number of kills because it's mostly just Lori, that security guard, one of the other teachers, her son, and like three other students that are still there. Everyone else has gone on a uh, field trip. It's got like a really good claustrophobic feel, honestly, which is impressive because there are scenes that are outside. But, you know... I'd say this is a solid sequel. It's a nice, good entry. Jamie Lee Curtis does the does a great job of portraying Laurie as, you know, she's a grown woman now. She's trying to move on. She can't really because she's still fucking seeing Michael everywhere even before he shows up again. And you know something? Kudos to Halloween. Tw- kudos to this and the next movie for both being slasher movies where a black character actually leaked actually lives to the end. So yeah, Halloween Resurrection. After one of the most bullshit plot twists I have ever seen, because the ending, and if you know this, you know what I mean. Halloween 20 years later, the ending has Laurie basically stealing the ambulance that Michael's body is loaded into. At some point, he wakes up while she's driving, attacks her, they crash, Lori takes the fireman's axe and cuts Michael's head off. And we cut to Halloween Resurrection. Three years later. Apparently, Lori's in a mental institution now. 
Uh, uh, Lori is in a mental institution because she went crazy with with guilt because the guy that he she decapitated with that axe was not in fact Michael. Michael just crushed the larynx of a DMT, swapped clothes with him, and Lori decapitated him, thinking it was Michael. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> It's so fucking dumb, and I didn't pick up on how dumb it was when I was a kid and I saw this, because I saw this when I was, like, 13. It was, like, censored on the sci-fi channel. But, good lord. <laughs> Imagine having to bring back my, bring back a character through something like that. But, at least in this case, it would explain why the guy didn't say anything. I don't think it really explained why he didn't just take the mask off. Because, I mean, Laurie did see Michael at one point with his mask off. But, yeah. So, Michael comes, uh, attacks, gets some good kills in at the asylum with some of the staff, and then, you know, sorry to have to tell you this, but unfortunately, Laurie is killed off after, like, Five to seven minutes of screen time, depending on who's counting. It's a couple of good callbacks to the original Halloween, because there's, like, you know, there's a classroom setting where there's a discussion of the concept of fate. Well, okay, it was fate in the original. Um, this one, they're talking about Carl Jung, the psychiatrist psychologist or whatever and talking about the different parts of the mind you know the ego the super ego and most relevant to this the shadow uh, we follow this internet reality show where a group of college kids are spending the night in Michael's house unaware that Michael is um, still alive and is back in town and is very unhappy with these kids waltzing around his house okay so all that out of the way, here's my opinion on Resurrection. I know that it is a terrible movie, but it is also on my... It's tentatively on my list of so bad it's good. I know for some people it might be a little too slow and too boring to really qualify, but I'm going to say this. The sole reason that our main char- that one of our main characters is played by Buster Rhymes... <laughs> <laughs> He is simultaneously the best and worst thing about this movie. Okay, strike that second worst. The worst thing about this movie is how shitty Michael's mask looks. I don't know why, it just looks so dumb. And the fact that they have Michael make this sort of like ghostly wailing noise. Like, fuck off, this isn't Danny Phantom, alright? <laughs> but Buster Rhymes thought he was like the coolest fucking guy when he was doing this shit. It's like... Because he's basically just playing himself. Um, hosting this internet reality show. And he's delivering things like he's just talking at like a normal real world press conference or whatever. And it's like we get the setup that he's a big fan of like, you know, martial arts movies to the point where he actually tries to like use kung fu on Michael <laughs> and tries to imitate it. Uh, from the movie he was watching earlier. 
He did surprisingly well, actually. He managed to get a couple good kicks in, and then Michael just throws him out a fucking window. Uh, <laughs> and there's another funny scene where we see uh, Michael, quote-unquote, wandering around the house. And then another Michael shows up behind him, and you're like, wait, what's going on? And he turns around, and he's like, oh, Jesus. We find out that one of them is actually just, like, Buster Rhymes' character, Freddy, in a mask. He's like, but he just thinks it's Charlie, his, like, assistant or whatever. <laughs> and then when the actual Michael walks away, he just says to himself, it's like, what's a guy got to do to get some decent help in this motherfucker? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a guilty pleasure or so bad it's good, but I, I, still, get, I still can't help but chuckle whenever I watch the movie. All right, so that's, <laughs> that's going to be it for classical Halloween. Uh, I'm going to do the... Rob Zombie remakes and the David Gordon Green remakes. Uh, not remakes, requel, tr- uh, reboot, whatever the fuck you want to call it. <laughs> um, I'll be talking about that tomorrow. Uh, I'll be wrapping up the month. Um, I'm just going to say, for anyone that doesn't want spoilers for those, just, uh, I think Peacock's got all three of them. And I think it's got both of the Rob Zombie ones as well. So just give those a watch. Until then, signing off. Stay safe. Good night. (laughs) 